I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our featured poet today is Craig Jury. He is the author of over 20 books of poetry, and today we'll be reading and discussing poems from his most recent book, Thumbnotes Almanac, Hitchhiking the Marcellus Shale, which he describes as a documentary woven from hitchhiking interviews and observations through the heart of fracking country where he lives in northeastern Pennsylvania. His work demonstrates the depth of what can be learned and communicated when a poet becomes immersed in his subject matter. Then, I'll be reviewing U.S. Poet Laureate Philip Levine's just-published posthumous collection, The Last Shift. I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our featured poet today is Craig Jury. He's from Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania originally, and still lives in Pennsylvania in the heart of fracking country. And that fact is very important to, uh, to the contents of a recent book called The Thumb Notes Almanac. Uh, about the book, a local historian says, the voices Jury chronicles in his Thumbnotes Almanac of everyday people trying to navigate through the thunderous noise of the region's divide. From shards of conversation struck up in cars and trucks of folks open enough to pick him up when he had his thumb out. Jury creates a verbal mosaic of fractured pieces of fractured conversations from a hydrofract region. So Craig, uh, let's talk about that. How how come you're still hitchhiking? It's not exactly in in mode these days. No, but I in my younger years I spent 15 of them hitchhiking. And uh, when I found poetry, it was out west in Montana. Hmm. In in Missoula, there was just a bunch of rugged guys who were writing a kind of poetry that was masculine and it was from the earth it was from the mountains it was from the lakes the creeks the streams and in it and it was a poetry of from the place that one lives at a time when i had left my home the message in the growing up in the coal region in northeastern pennsylvania was that life was elsewhere you know there i don't know of any family that wanted their kids to grow up and, and be coal miners, even as the industry was dying. But um, in, my, in my neighborhood alone, on my street, there was a grandparent living in each, each house, and in my house there was Hungarian spoken. My grandmother, my yeah. father. Across the street, Peterson, there was Swedish spoken. Up the street, uh, in the Thomas family, Welsh was spoken. Polish with Radziski, Italian with R- Vitali, and they sent us to high school to learn Spanish and French. So the clear message was life is elsewhere. Yeah. So it wasn't until a lot of knocking around that uh, I discovered that these po- these poets that actually turned me around to head toward home, and and then those years of 
living in old hotels in the coal region. And these, as my mom calls them, shit-ass coal towns. Um, I went looking for myself in the mine shafts and in the railroad tracks and in the sulfur creeks and in the miners uh, and in the, the old miners who I used to drink with and who actually took me down to work in the mines with me wow. or with them. And uh, so I, I discovered a, a, a part a, a who I should have become if I hadn't left home. Mm all the time and and it was a way that really turned my sensitivities around and 30 years later after writing those poems in that book uh god's shiny glass eye um it was time to come home again uh i had been listening to the noise created between the, uh, the gas industry and, and the activists yes. environmentalists and it was loud. It was necessarily loud. And it captured the media's attention. But being from up there, originally as, as a kid, um, I knew there was something underneath the noise that wasn't being told. It was being shown in films. Josh Fox had been shown in photographs. Uh, but it wasn't talked about in literature yet. So it was time to come home. I moved back up. Susquehanna County between Tunkhannock and Montrose on Route 29 I live in an old schoolhouse um, just south of Dimmick Springville and I, I wanted to you know I, I could have gone to AA meetings I could have gone to barber shops I could have gone to <laughs> church you know to listen to the people talk yeah. but I thought you know let me let me get back on the road and meet people and and see who picks me up and catch their stories. So I spent three and a half years hitchhiking Route 29, um, conducting interviews with whoever picked me up. Now they never, they didn't know I was conducting interviews. Right. I, right. I, they just thought I had a DUI or my car broke down. Yeah. Were you were you kind of systematic? Like, did you know you always hoped to get an answer to? one or two questions that you had in mind well it was inevitable because the you know the action was so thick up there um the the first you know you the pipelines were just coming in so so the earth would you, you every you know every so many miles there would be a, a pipeline trench that eviscerated the earth and every conversation even just getting in um to avoid the truck traffic yeah. you know so here are the trucks and um and there, I have a refrain in, throughout this book, never mind the trucks. Mm. Because if we started talking about the trucks, we'd be here for, for you know, we'd never go home. <laughs> but um, there was something beyond the obvious. Mm -hmm. um, just saying hello to somebody was a gas issue. Because everybody knew, everybody knows who, who signed the gas lease and who didn't sign. Mm. And when some, when the period of time when somebody signed the gas lease determined whether they would receive, you know, five hundred dollars a month, or fifty thousand dollars a month. That's uh, so the holdouts got more, but so there was there was always that that kind yeah. of uh, disparity between yeah. the people in that region, that where where he's just saying hello to somebody 
was a conversation about gas. Whoa. Well, you want to read a poem or two that kind yeah, of... Yeah, uh, I'll give this... Uh, gives, it some, gives it the local color you were going for. Here, here's the depth. The pipeline. It's passing, you, you know, this, yeah. is, uh, this is a pipeline poem. Evening sky, diesel blue, purple tinge. Last of the sun burnt white through a stand of maples, past the drill rig, then rolled down over the hill. Hayfield mowed into rolls, slid up its gut deep through the shoulder, pipelined. Tomorrow this gaping trench will be backhoed shut, leaving a long blood rose stem after bypass. If you were to tell me the patient has 100% chance of recovery, I'd plant carrots and onions, a long corridor of sweet corn and cabbages in this scar. End to end, the cemeteries are a feeding tube of bones blanched in the vapors of black poppies. What I want is what others around the world wanted and gave their lives for, to drink from your mouth and say, this is good. I mean, there's three things that I like. I really like, I like people working and I like people making money. And I like drinking water. And in a lifetime, one would think that's not too much to ask for. You know, as, as those years when I was younger, bumming around North America, I'd you know I'd pick up odd jobs mm -hmm. when I could, and, and different from place to place. So I was an itinerant worker. So when these guys from Texas, Oklahoma, uh, Louisiana come up with the pipeline or for the gas drilling. Um, I like these guys. And, uh, you know, one would think, well, you know, these good old rural good old boys from the south and the rural good old boys from northeast Pennsylvania, you know, just, they get together. Well, the, the clash was fierce because what was never taken into consideration was um, how poor northeastern Pennsylvania is. In, in the endless mountains, in uh, in this region of dairy farms gone bust, from the, the from the cap on dairy prices, you know, four gener four four decades ago, five decades ago, and and had created a, you know a generations of unemployed farmers, and the children of farmers, and. The, you know, what you did for work, well, there's, you know, paper, you know, factory, there's uh, Charmin factory, and then there's like Cargill meat packing, and then you just did odd jobs or... Yeah. I have to say one good thing about the gas industry. It took the heat off the meth labs. Hmm. Nobody's talking about the meth labs anymore. <laughs> I asked a friend, I said, well, what were the big issues before the gas industry here? They said, well, the meth labs were a big issue, and, uh, and the chemical fertilizers uh, from the farms washing into the water, uh -huh. into the lakes and streams, uh, that, that then ble leached into the, the, the Chesapeake watershed. So these have, there have always been environmental issues, uh -huh. but... This one's this one's invisible. This one this one you don't know for sure, yeah. but you know 
when people's water turns up sour and when people come down with illnesses that can't be explained. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This really shows the value of, of being in place and, and having this in-depth knowledge of the place, you know, that you can bring that, you know, someone who's not there wouldn't think of, I don't believe. Right. Wouldn't be as aware of, right. of the things you're aware of. And there's, you know, there's a poet who said, uh, the further the further the people, the louder the cry. Hmm. I mean, people all over the world are, for all the right reasons, crying out against an industry such as this. But those of us who are who live there and grew up there, and it's like, yeah, but there's a yeah, but. To so there's, it. there's a yin and yang thing. A, yeah, there's a yeah, but. Yeah, but our, our libraries have never been more well off. Our churches mm -hmm. are in good standing. I mean, these gas leases are, are spread around, and yet the community's never been more broken, and, mm -hmm. and the, the families have never been more broken. Wow. And the clash of the just monthly ch a monthly check, you know, it's it's a it's a humble region. People aren't used to having a lot of money, so you can see the effect of the gas money coming in on a new barn, a new roof on your house. Yeah. Everybody's got brand new cars and pickup trucks. Where you know, eight, eight, nine, ten, ten nine years ago, there's a little league field up behind the uh, the schoolhouse and. My friend pointed out, you know, like eight years ago, you'd have seen rust buckets up here. <laughs> Nothing mm. but rust. Yeah. Yeah. The parking lots look really nice. Yeah. Here's what scares us. We don't know what's going on. We know what's going on, but we don't know all of what's going on. We know what's going on, but we don't know who's doing it. I mean, we know who's doing it, but we don't know who exactly is doing it. We don't know their names. We only know the company names. The why is obvious. It's the how that leaves us a lot of questions. Even when they explain it to us. Even when their spokesperson goes on TV. Even when they parade their heavy equipment past our farmhouses at breakneck speeds. Even when they let us watch from the fence in our cars afraid to get out especially when they come to our door with papers to sign. What scares us is their uniforms, their uniform trucks and their uniform masculinity, the uniform air of their unified occupation, the ununiformity of their money, uniform cash flow, ignitable youth with muscle, calling it water, and buying us off to drink. What scares us is we have laws to protect us, but they buy off the laws. They buy off the commissioners who regulate the laws that protect what we have to live with. They write the fine print loophole, a small opening through which small arms may be fired. The scary part is we know how to read. It scares us we don't know what to do. We don't know who to talk to about what scares us. We don't know who to contact 
we don't have a number. And when we do, we get referred. We get rerouted. We get put on hold. We get frustrated. Then we start yelling, saying things we can't explain. That's what scares us, how angry we've gotten. With no one to explain, it will go away. It won't go away, like it doesn't matter to anyone, except our neighbors, when they used to be our friends, except our families, when they used to be our friends, except our friends, when we didn't live under occupation, especially our friends who signed and moved away. What scares us is our daughters. One of the biggest social divides was all these strapping young guys coming into the region with these shiny white trucks and wads full of cash, you know, wads of cash. And for the first time, here comes money and here comes virility. And the local boys couldn't compete with that. So guess who gets lost, or guess what gets lost, and gets, and guess what, you know, and, then, and there's the clash, the good old boys. It was promised, one of the, I mean, one of the drawing cards of, of the industry is, we'll bring jobs to your area. Well, you know, drilling for gas is a, is a specific, it has specific jobs where you have to have skills that the, the oil workers, the roughnecks from down south, have. So they, they, here comes the influence of skilled workers. Mm. Um, and uh, one of the big issues is um, the local guys, a lot of the locals, um, you know, didn't have work experience. Generations of, you know, unemployment. Um, so it didn't really do it then for the locals. Not, I mean, not much. Not much. Not, not, yeah. not, not, not well, in a not way that, that was promised. Uh, you know, a lot, of the, a lot of the young guys couldn't pass the drug tests that were required. Yeah. You know, repeatedly. You know, you get a month to dry out and take it again, but come on. So the communities did benefit from uh, the, the industry needed truck, truck drivers. Um, and it needed stations, it needed service stations, it needed... So the periphery of the industry, uh, communities did make out mm. to an extent. All of the clothing stores um, converted to steel toe boots and fire, you know, retardant yeah. clothing. Yeah. Um, but a lot of the restaurants closed. Um, mm. a, lot of the, a lot of the local businesses closed because it was... Mm they couldn't make a transition from industrial mm -hmm. specific items hmm. so so the 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 boom busted really really soon hmm. let me go a slightly different direction go ahead how how uh, how'd you learn to write poetry how how did oh. that come about was her a role model uh... when i was a kid i used to walk home from school uh, for lunch elementary school and my mother in between her ironing and her Loretta Young theater would take time in in the afternoon to uh, write letters to her friends she would she would write letters in the middle of the day and uh, I, 
to her friends who were far away or had moved, just to bring them closer. And then when she received letters from them, she'd share them at the dinner table. As I grew older, you know, I, I, you, you, I was always filled with, you know, ideas that, unfortunately, my parents never really wanted to hear about. You know, all those wild and crazy, I mean, brilliant <laughs> ideas that were filled with. And uh, it just wasn't the kind of dinner talk that my father was tolerant for. Not anything bad. It was just like wacky yeah. stuff. So I, I was often sent to my room. You're going to talk like that, but you better go to your room. So... I mean, what do you do with all those wild and brilliant ideas? Um, so I used to write them. I used to write them as letters and send to friends that I'd met over the summer down the shore. Or, you know, just friends. I used to mail them out. I used to mail these ideas to people. And, uh, and I believe that was my first experience with writing poetry. Even though it was letter writing, mm -hmm. it came from the place that poetry comes right. from. Right. The fear of punishment, or not the fear, the, the, puni the punished being, being punished for the words spoken before written. Yeah. And I tell my students, write those things. You, can't, you just can't say, them, say this stuff out loud. That's what you know, crazy people do. They, but you got to get it written, because then it becomes literature. There you go. Yeah. And in this case, it's like documentary. Yes. It's like, it's like what? You're saying what about what? That's a word that nobody, nobody messes with. I was teaching in a prison one time, and the warden called me in and said, Craig, you can't, we, we have a policy where these kids can't like, talk about the thug life. They can't be, they, he said, we, you, you, you can't have them writing about killing and sex and what, do you, what am I going to have them write about? Your manicured lawns? I said, I said maybe, you didn't, maybe it's not really a poet that you want. I'm creating a, you know, a documentary through their writing. I said, oh. It's a D word. It's like if, you guys, if anybody out there ever gets threatened or gets in trouble for what you're writing, just throw out the D word. Because here comes Mahatma Gandhi. Here comes the Kennedys. Here comes... Here comes <laughs> comes Martin Luther King. So, so it's like now that it's like, oh, it's a documentary. Okay. That's cool. Okay. Hands off. So, That's great. So. <laughs> well, I think we have, we have time for another poem here, so why don't we do that? Yeah. Here's a poem. I wanted to create a poetry here that wasn't a, wasn't rant. Um, it wasn't, um, it wasn't a, a, directly, I wasn't directly talking about the industry, but I was talking about a, the life that surrounds it. I was used, I, I was kind of creating the negative space of, of an yeah. issue without really saying the issue out loud. Uh -huh. I was, I'm trying to get at something. If I, if I, if I listen to the people talk about their lives and I, and I write my observations about everything around me, it will come out with a picture of uh, of a fracking industry, commun a fracked community, uh -huh. and a fracked people. You know, from the coal mines, um, you know, these, these were, this was a gouged earth and these were gouged people. 
but here everything's fractured. So I'm standing outside of Joe's garage in Springville when uh, just after dinner, it was, it was not quite dusk. Now this is after I'd been up in a hot air balloon with uh, Lech Kowalski, the filmmaker, whose film Drill Baby Drill came from as a result of a lot of this, his travels in Poland and his <clears throat> staying at the schoolhouse. And the historian Kim Crafton and Janelle Pointer, the four of us went up over uh, the, 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 the gas industry. So, so here's the juxtaposition. The flare, the flame that's blowing up the hot air balloon, and often on the distant hill, the flare, the gas flare, uh, oh. that burns off excess gas and, and chemical uh, fusion. Um, here's the barn, the silo, and the gas and the, yeah. the gas rig, and then, and then from the air, it's all together. And then over here is Mashapin Creek, and the pipeline. So everything is like geographic, geometrically juxtaposed. And, uh, and then here's this poem. Three young teen girls in pink t-shirts are wandering the side of the road, the length of town and back. But it's not their story I'm after. It's what's surrounding their story. Not the tune, but what's carrying the tune. Writing everything their story isn't in order to define its contour as they climb the hill opposite through the trees like young deer one looks at me and smiles three pretty pink deer a synchronistic noise that becomes the tune the way count basie plays it the poof of the hot air balloon the foof of the gas rig burn off flare a shop in creek slitting its tongue through earthy grass banks the pipeline culvert, weathered barn silo parallel the gas rig tower. As trucks make tremendously wide turns off the highway onto my road, never mind the trucks, 721, my three pink deer are galloping. Ah, oh, wonderful. Well, I'm Charlie Rossiter. This is Poetry Spoken Here, and we've been hearing from Craig Jury giving us his poetic insights into the world of fracking in eastern Pennsylvania. Philip Levine, U.S. Poet Laureate from 2011 to 2012, was born in 1928 in Detroit and died in February 2015. Levine selected the poems for his final collection, and Edward Hirsch, his friend and literary executor, organized them and gave the collection the title The Last Shift. In The Last Shift, Levine continues to be a vivid chronicler of life inside the industrial, blue-collar, rust-belt America of his early years in the mid-20th century. Here are a few examples. In 1934, a portrait of life in the kind of working-class neighborhood where Levine spent his youth. The bigger-than-life men, old-world uncles who drank and wrestled in the dirt. 
told stories of magic escapes and revenge killings and gorgeous Ukrainian women. And in How to Get There, he describes a Brooklyn street scene, complete with sleeping street bum beside his empty takeout coffee cup, a picture of Jesus and a hand-lettered sign that says, Give what you can. In a series of short poems, A Dozen Dawn Songs Plus One, Levine describes what it's like to work on the factory's night shift. The picture is not pretty. Using the sequence, Levine is able to show the experience from varied angles. Philip Levine knows how to create a mood. In rain and winter, he does so by heaping on the details, describing the day as barely begun yet feeling used. An unanswered phone rings and rings until an icebox, quote, answers it with a groan. A lost dog sleeps on a pile of rags while wind rages and the rain beats on and on. Sicilian Voices is another moody poem that's possibly my favorite in the collection. It involves a walk through a seaside graveyard, a mystical distant character. The poem is pleasingly thought-provoking. And then there's Louis Lies and Zero for Conduct, portraits of two improbable eccentrics who remind me of characters right out of Herbert Hunky's The Evening Sky Turned Crimson. Both are highly improbable, but at the same time, they're not quite impossible to imagine. Louis doesn't just lie, as the poem tells us. Louis lives by lying. He must always lie, all day long. A bit extreme. And zero, I'd say he warrants a diagnosis of untreated schizophrenia based on his bizarre public behavior. The book concludes with a title poem, The Last Shift, another neighborhood poem that's among the best in the collection, although it includes a baffling scene I found distracting. In it, two winos hunched over a trash can fire are quote, tossing empty wine bottles into the street, where they are shattered on the frosted roofs of cars and scatter like chunks of ice. Meanwhile, two cops doze in a squad car across the street with a motor running. A scene like that might be possible, but a couple of things bothered me enough to stop me right there mid-poem. Bottles are described as tossed in the street at the same time, they shatter on the roofs of cars. Something about that description just struck me as off. I just can't imagine bottles tossed in the street being lobbed high enough in the air to land and shatter on a car. I also had trouble with the cops dozing through the crash of wine bottles. Like Levine, it's been decades since I've actually lived in a neighborhood like the one he describes in the poem. Yet I still find it hard to imagine the cops not responding. I could be wrong here, but the scene as described seemed off enough to me that the effect of this otherwise excellent poem was compromised. I'm Charlie Rossiter, and I'm suggesting, actually, that if you acquire a copy of Philip Levine's just-published last book, The Last Shift, you'll be glad you did. listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, inviting you to join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. 
Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter Monley. And remember, Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash poetry spoken here. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash poetry spoken here. For more about today's show and other Poetry Spoken Here podcasts, as well as our blog, just visit our website, poetryspokenhere.com. If you'd like to submit suggestions of poets or topics for future podcasts, you can send to our email address, poetryspokenhere at gmail.com. <laughs>